0: Today's guest is Mike Crowley and in this episode we're going to explore the intersection between psychedelics and Buddhism. We're going to look at Mike's research into the secret drugs of Buddhism and different ancient scriptures and what he's uncovered in his work. Fascinating exploration and Mike is a lovely character. Unfortunately, I can't actually find the video for this episode that I filmed, so uh, it's part of it's going to be quite low quality if you're watching on YouTube, Uh, but if you're listening, it shouldn't really make a difference. Um, Yeah, I hope you're going to enjoy the show either way, and stay tuned because there's plenty more good stuff to come through the channel. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, click the little notification bell so you don't miss any of that. If you are watching on YouTube and if you're checking out the show at an audio only channel like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, then I invite you to leave a review. Let me know what you think about the show and hit subscribe if you're enjoying and getting some value out of the conversations. If you're enjoying the show and you want to take things a little bit further, maybe you want to connect on a deeper level by supporting, then uh, the number one way to do that to support the transmission of these mindful media vibes out into the interconnected sphere of shared space is to join the today dreamer tribe you can do that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash today dreamer not only that will that help me keep this show alive but it also supports the intention or what the show stands for so I'll give you a bit of a rundown on Mike's background. He was born in Wales in 1948, and in '66, he uh, started studying with a Tibetan Lama. He became an Upasaka of the Kagyu lineage in 1970. Mike has lectured at various museums and universities, and has been published uh, 14 times in the Journal of Archaeology, Consciousness and Culture, Psychedelic American and Psychedelic Press UK. He's also received uh, the Gordon Wasson Award for outstanding contributions to the field of entheobotany. He currently serves on the advisory board of the Psychedelic Sangha, a group of psychedelically inclined Buddhists based in New York, and teaches at the Dharma Collective in San Francisco. So, shall we get into things? Then, so we won't worry about that. There we go.
1: Oh, it suddenly said it's recording. Just a minute. Yeah. Continue. Okay, I've hit continue.
0: All right. Well, um, what I usually do for the podcast is I invite the guests and the listeners to have a moment of presence with me and just kind of take a deep breath in and we can just kind of connect with our breath for a moment. It gives, I think it gives people a nice way to pause in, in the middle of whatever they're doing and also gives us a nice chance to kind of drop into this space together. Um, you know, I've just kind of, it seems like we've both come from kind of uh, frantic uh, or semi frantic state of being or from different kind of um, like setting up all the audio and everything. So it's nice <laughs> to just take a moment. Yeah. So, yeah, is to- nice. Uh, Let's have a breath together then, and then we can get into things. So I invite everyone listening to also just take a moment and close your eyes when you're ready. And allow yourself to take a conscious and slow inhale in through the nose, into the belly as slow as you can. Taking a moment to pause at the top. Appreciate that space and uh, a moment at the bottom as well. Whenever you're ready in your own time, feel free to synchronize the opening of your eyes with your exhale and we can begin from this this space with one another. Where should we begin? <laughs> I feel like there's, there's so many roads we could take, Mike with this one. Um, so many facets of your work that interest me and I've got an abundance of questions ready to go but I guess yeah I I don't know if it's if you're open to it, maybe you could share a little bit about um, why well, I find your background quite fascinating and how you came into the, um, you know, how, how this link between ancient traditions and psychedelics came into your kind of, into your kind of conscious awareness and, and how you kind of began that journey of exploration might be a place to, to start the conversation if you're open to it.
1: Oh, sure. I Discovered Buddhism and psychedelics approximately the same time. And um, at first, I didn't um, realize that, that there was any um, ancient historical connection. I'd read Alan Watt's book, The Joyous Cosmology, in which he described how LSD could be used as a tool with, uh, Buddhism in mind, but it wasn't until I had an experience, which was in the company of friends and, um, um, people who were mainly doing cannabis tincture, which was available for a brief period on the British national health, while cannabis was illegal. But it was legal to have cannabis tincture. If you were prescribed it. And a friend of mine was prescribed it. It, it cost um sixpence for a bottle of um of tincture, which a bottle was a, a pint bottle, and um we calculated it to contain 72, um, full on flat out experiences. So it was pretty good value for six months. Uh, but I was afraid that I was going to, um, just, um, like zone out and be completely zombie like for the entire experience. So I took, um, a third, I'd been given a third of a pill, which was an orange sunshine pill, which was available at the time um, of LSD, orange sunshine LSD made by someone who later became a friend of mine. Um, And uh, so on a third of a, a tab of LSD, which turned out to be Well, strong enough, Um, given his later uh, disclosures about how strong these tablets were. So, I um, I started by standing on the um, the patio of my friend's house in the country and the home counties. Uh, which surround London, there was a turkey farm next door. The sun had just gone down, and I said to my friend who was standing next to me, oh, look at the fireflies. And he said, what fireflies? As he said, what fireflies, the points of light, which uh, had revealed themselves to me, traced an intricate pattern of knotwork across the sky. And I said, Oh, uh, never mind. And I went and sat down in the living room to listen to Bach's Art of the Fugue, which was playing on my friend's hi fi system. And I closed my eyes. And to my surprise, I witnessed what seemed to be three entirely new dimensions that is to say uh, the uh, dimension of time was the same as normal but the dimensions of space had been replaced by completely other dimensions of space um, these seemed to be at right angles to normal the our normal quotidian experiences of left, right, up, down, forward, backward. And this new space was filled with regularly arranged spheres of completely limpid crystal. They were absolutely transparent and Each crystal reflected every other crystal in the array. Not only that, but the entire being of each crystal was only its reflection of every other crystal in the array. In other words, this entire array depended on its entirety for every portion of it to exist, and I watched this in rapt attention for, oh, I don't know, um, a minute, a half an hour, a century—I don't know. It was time was irrelevant to me, and although I say it was transpiring at the usual rate. Um, we were no longer bound by the experience of time. And um, so, having experienced this, i was I was immensely impressed. Oh, I should say that at the same time, each crystal was a wave packet, and it was modulated by the waves in every other wave packet in this universe. So I was was seeing the crystals as particles, but um, I was also aware of their wave nature at the same time. Now, some months after this, I read a book called The, the Buddhist Theory of Totality by CC C. Chang. And he described the, uh, the, the phenomenon or the, the experience known as the Indra's net. And um, he described it as, um, an experience of interpenetration, which was um, pointed out by the founder of the Avatamsaka School of Buddhism in medieval China, which became the Kagon School of Japan. And not only that did he, not only did uh, Tu Shung, I think his name was, and describe what I had already seen, but he mentioned that it was described in greater detail in the Avatamsaka Sutra, which of course I had to look up. And I was astonished that um, somebody centuries ago, centuries before my experience could ex- explain and describe my experience in minute detail, he didn't mention the um, wave particle duality because I, uh, uh, I, I believe that uh, wave packets wasn't a part of um, medieval Chinese vocabulary. But apart from that, it was identical to what I'd seen. And I realized uh, that there were one or two explanations of this. Either I had found a back door into um, a profound Buddhist state. That back door consisting of the um, the combined use of a teaspoon of uh, cannabis tincture and a third of a tablet of LSD, or The medieval Buddhists of China had used this substance also. They had used um, not necessarily LSD, but perhaps mushrooms or um, some other psychedelic. Either way, whichever of these two uh, explanations was uh, the the correct one, I... uh, I found that this confirmed my use of psychedelics as a tool to to um, reach various Buddhist heights, and continued to to take LSD for uh, um, for this purpose. And uh, I decided to keep on meditating, uh, but to occasionally. Uh, adjust my uh, um, my meditations if you like by uh, the application of LSD and uh, occasionally psilocybin mushrooms uh, so that's basically uh what confirmed my my use of psychedelics and um as I as I uh, had more experience with buddhism at this point i had only uh, officially become a buddhist a few months before but over the the following years i found that there were more and more evidences of psychedelic use and um Eventually, um, I I was telling a friend of mine about this in the 1990s, about the various bits of evidence I'd picked up. And he said, you should write a book about this. Well, I did. I did. And it took me 25 years to get it all down on paper. And um, that was my book, Secret Drugs of Buddhism. Of course, I have uh, various initiations or empowerments um, into certain deities and there are parts of those initiations which seem to be about psychedelic mushrooms. I would love to discuss this with anyone who has had the uh, the body mandala of Chakra samvara empowerment according to the tradition of Luipa um, but as yet i've found no one with that qualification and so i am bound to secrecy as to what these uh um these intimations may have been
0: it'd be very interesting but, to be a fly on the wall in during that discussion <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i'm sure it would um but as i'm i'm bound to secrecy about the uh the initiation um, it has to remain secret until I find someone who has also undergone the same initiation Yeah. so that was that was basically how it came about that I yeah. put two two together
0: and you were saying that this was kind of during the initial stages of your Buddhist practice or journey into that exploration and 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 now you're a you're a lama if I'm correct yes
1: this uh, this happened in 1970 the same year that i took refuge from my teacher and um in 1989 january the 1st 1989 i became a lama, uh was um uh ordained by the very same teacher and i'm he's still alive i'm still with him and i saw him Oh, a couple of years ago in England, where he lives. Um, and um, but, but now I'm I'm officially at his level. I'm a lama, and um, I can tell people how to meditate and uh, uh, tell people um, what various symbols mean and what have you
0: so um how would you say the the, the psychedelic experiences inform the process or that journey from those early days through to um becoming a llama and beyond
1: um, it's difficult to to um to sum it up, yeah in that um There are so many different psychedelic experiences. There are um, possibly as many as the the number of times you've taken the psychedelic. Um, I would say that all in all, it helps you um, see the nature of mind. You could explain the the behavior of mind as being like a television set or a cinema screen. Um, You can see dramas and comedies and thrillers and horror films. But throughout all these um, experiences, it's all on the same screen. You have to realize that all these experiences are just experiences. Um, meanwhile, you're watching coloured points of light on a screen. Um, yeah. It's if it's if we're talking about television, it's still the same television. It's the same screen that it was when you uh, you first turned it on, and it's the same when you turn it off. The, um the the pictures which appear on it um, are brief transitory and um their, their, their effects their um the emotions which they evoke are similarly brief and uh, and varied and um and so on um LSD helps you to witness the the nature of mind itself, to see the nature of the screen, uh, to use the analogy.
0: It just seems as though, you know, if out of those two options that you gave earlier, if the uh, drugs of ancient times were used to reach these states, if that is the case, then it seems as though uh, the the psychedelics would provide a uh, this is yeah a one way of putting it but like an acceleration of that process or even or even an opening that couldn't be obtained otherwise seemingly um, do you have any thoughts on that or do you it's, and do um, you feel like it's more supportive or yeah that's kind of well,
1: well I have thought about this and I've thought that. Um, whether it does or does not, it mm. doesn't really matter. This this immense animal, which is just impinged on our consciousness here, is, <laughs> yes, yes. is my cat, It likes yeah. to to be part of everything that I do.
0: Yeah, we met last um, time. You were saying that he doesn't leave your side.
1: No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He was, uh, and he's jealous of you now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's um it, this is a similar question to the question I've been asked many times is how how would you have uh, proceeded with Buddhism if you hadn't taken psychedelics so I've no idea I mm. did take psychedelics mm. so I can't really put myself in any position where I didn't
0: yeah so would you have proceeded differently knowing that um kind of um, knowing what you know now through the experience of taking the psychedelics
1: I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> who knows huh yeah yeah exactly who knows
0: yeah yeah it's interesting so um <laughs> this idea of and this is probably another question you've been asked uh, probably've been asked quite a few times and it's just something I want to cover because I wanted to just get an kind of it just seems like a, an obvious thing to tick off before we kind of go a little bit deeper in one direction or another but the fifth precept and the idea of um clouding the mind um and you know it obviously depends on your perspective of this psychedelic experience and whether that's clouding or really clearing in a sense based on what you're saying it seems like the latter um but how do you approach I that i would
1: definitely say the latter yeah. and um Uh, to people who put this question to me, I asked them, well, are you a Buddhist? Mm -hmm. Did you take this precept? You don't have to take that precept to be a Buddhist. You don't have to take any precepts. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to vow not to kill, not to lie, not to steal, not to commit sexual adultery and not to drink alcohol, which is what I did. I, I took all those it, it did not say you don't take uh, drugs which will cloud the mind. It said you will not drink alcohol. In fact, it was more specific than that. It was in Tibetan and it said you won't drink Chang. Chang being Tibetan beer. Hmm. I thought, well, that's an easy one to keep. Yeah. <laughs> and so, anyway, I did keep that for, for um, 20 years until I took the. Uh, empowerment which said you must take uh, that th- there are 14 vows which come with every empowerment and they're slightly different for everyone and for the it said you will take a small amount a token amount of amrita every day even if it's only alcohol so uh, this was, you know, this was a vow which superseded the earlier vows and um, and said that you will take alcohol if you treat it as Amrita. Hmm. Um, now, admittedly, it was talking about a token amount of alcohol as it was talking about token amounts of Amrita, which, um, by the way, I told this to Jim Fadiman, who was delighted with it because he saw this as an ancient precursor of microdosing. Now, the earliest versions of this vow were about alcohol because alcohol was the only um, popularly uh, available psychoactive substance at the time. And if, the, the, if you read the Vinaya, the monastic rules and be, behind every monastic rule, there's a there's a story or set of stories in the Vinaya which explain why this isn't um, to be done, why such and such a rule is put in place and um in in the vinaya it speaks only of alcohol and um there was um th- there are no other drugs and it was only after um various foreign drugs made their way in into india uh, drugs like opium uh that um the uh, the fifth precept was changed to drugs that cloud the mind. Mm-hmm. So it depends on whether you've taken the vow. Um, what vow did you take?
0: It's also a matter of making that vow your own in your own way.
1: Well, yes, you you, you always interpret the vow in um, the the five vows or ten vows. Or, you know there are special vows mm. which you take for special days it's always a matter of making them your own and uh, and um taking them seriously yeah I don't mean that you should find ways around it mm. um that's not what I'm sure that's not what you meant by making them your own but um it's a uh, if you just have a glass of wine with your meals, that that could be seen as um, as an not taking a drug which clouds the mind as it doesn't cloud the mind very much at all. However, it still does and That's it should true. be observed. And, um, and so I didn't take alcohol um, in any form for, for 20 years, until I, I took the Nyingtik Yabshi empowerment. I, I did, however, take, um, a sip of alcohol, at Ghana chakras, which is, uh, the tantric feast where you take, um, oh, you nibble on a bit of meat, usually a slice of salami and, um, and have a sip of wine. Hmm. Um, However, I now believe that this was originally, that these meats were not um, intended to represent actual meat and not the flesh of animals. And the amritas, the five amritas, uh, were never intended to be the five disgusting bodily fluids which which are described as as being the five amritas. So... um, Oh, the the meats, by the way, are um, cow, horse, dog, elephant,
0: and human. So you think they're like a symbolic representation of something I, else?
1: I believe that they were symbolically um, five different psychedelic plants and fungi, and that the the five emperors were the. Um, Substances which were derived from these, uh, the, from the meats, so that they would they would be teas made from um, whatever whatever dog meant that would be one tea. Whatever human meant, that would be another tea, and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, so the five the five amritas, if I can remember them correctly, are blood, urine, um, pus, piss. And brains, blood, urine, past, past yeah, blood, urine past piss, and brains mm. uh so i I really don't believe that um medieval sadhakas were able to obtain fresh elephant meat every month, um although they might find human meat in a um uh, the the smarshana, where they sa- celebrated the the, um, the 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 cremation ground, mm. where they that uh, that the, they were supposed to celebrate it, in Sanskrit, it's called smarshana.
0: I I find but, it interesting how you kind of the research that must have been done to kind of get into the finer detail of all of this, and I think you've you've kind of yeah, I've, just from what I've absorbed of yours, it seems like you've done quite a lot. I actually, speaking of urine, I need to go pee at the moment. <laughs> so, do you, do, you, do you mind if we just pause this for like you one may minute? Pause, All right, uh, I'll be back in a moment.
1: Well, okay. Amrita literally is immortality. And it's um, considered in the Rig Veda to be a synonym for Soma.
0: And what's the Rig Veda? Sorry.
1: Oh, the Rig Veda is the oldest religious scripture in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: In fact, it was not actually written down until the 19th century. Well, there was it was written down once in the 14th century for the Moguls, but apart from that, it wasn't written down until the British, um, the Raj which incidentally is not pronounced Raj, it's Raj. And uh, they were the, uh, uh, the British rulers of India. And they, they said, hey, well, what's this um, well, um Stuff that you keep reciting, you Brahmins, Brahmins being the high priests, the, the priests who are the highest caste of all. They recited the book and had done uh, ritually since it was first composed about 2000 BC. And so the British wrote this book down in 13 different places in India. And there were only some very minor differences in the uh, various redactions which were available in different parts of India where they spoke different languages. And so uh, even though they didn't understand what they were reciting, they were not only reciting Sanskrit which they were familiar with and did understand, they were Reciting Vedic Sanskrit, which is an uh, an older, and more archaic form.
0: So, where does the where does the immortality fit into the picture?
1: So, uh, Amrita is um, is uh, as I said a synonym for soma. Soma was um, a drink which kept the gods immortal. Uh, which is why it's called Amrita, amri Death, Ta-ness, uh, not deathness or immortality. Anyway, so Soma was a um, a drink which was made during a specific ritual called the Agnihotra or the Yajna and um, Uh, the Rig Veda are a set of uh, chants which accompany this ritual. Um, the ritual involves the sacrifice of an animal and then um, a fire is built on a hearth of 108 bricks um, shaped like a bird. and um, The soma is is pressed out between two stones, and um, either water or milk is added to help to to produce the liquid. The liquid is then strained through sheep's wool into a um, a large vessel called the samudra, or ocean, and it's... um, it's then ladled out from the Samudra. Uh, first of all, it is offered to the fire. It's offered to um, basically three gods: to uh, Agni, the god of fire; Indra, the king of the gods; and Rudra, the god of the um, the soma. Drink itself. Sometimes he is called soma. Sometimes rudra, and um, various synonyms are used for poetic purposes for the uh, the process called um, elegant variation, so that you don't use the same word every time in uh, saying all the 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 lines of a hymn. You would call it soma on one occasion, amrita on the next, shukra uh, after that. And what's the reason and, for
0: that? Is it coming to secrecy at all? And there seems to be an element no, of secrecy. No, in...
1: it's it's just um, it's just the poetic aesthetic which was part of the their um uh, their culture. It's the same in English. If you're writing a letter to someone in English,
0: I'm not going to use the same word over and over. Yeah
1: exactly yeah many languages like tibetan don't have this they don't have this notion of poetic um uh elegant variation
0: but there was an element to to uh in regards to secrecy in regards to these older um ancient texts right and and that's why it seems like such a difficult task to do the research and piece things together and kind of See where kind of, kind of make little leaps and figure things out.
1: There, there were now Sanskrit. I should point out is not a natural language. It was invented about two thousand BC as a lingua franca to enable the five Aryan tribes. These were the tribes. That branched off from the proto-Indo-Europeans and made it to India. and they they spoke different um, different dialects, different languages. and it was um, although they had the same caste system and so on of basically in this early period, there were three castes, priests, warriors, and farmers. and and they decided that the priests needed to be able to communicate in order to perform these rituals together, rituals like the horse sacrifice, the Ashva Medha.
0: What's the reason for the sacrifice? Sorry, I'm just curious about that.
1: I have no idea. It seems that, um, that at some period of human development, people thought that the gods required blood mm. and that they, um, they that they were pleased by um the the killing of animals
0: It seems to they me were... there is just in life like there is need of sacrifice sometimes as initiate is an initiation into like a, a deeper um state of being or 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 maybe that's not the best way of putting it as a some kind of an initiatory process onto into another kind of um it's often
1: thought to be the case i am not sure if it is though in um
0: like maybe not uh, of an animal but like to make it, it seems like sacrifices allow you to go deeper into something
1: in the secret drugs of buddhism i do tell the story of um a tibetan vajrayana empowerment and initiation, where we are um, all being given Amrita to drink. Now, I should say that in most modern initiations, the Amrita is either totally innocuous or, or like almost innocuous as it is basically just some yellowish liquid with lots of blessings said over it, mm. and um, the lemon lime and, and not... bitters
0: of the psychedelic world.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so we were all standing in line waiting to get our like palmful of amrita poured out for us, and um, this guy who I'd never met before said to me, what do they expect us to do? And I I was a bit baffled. I just said, well, you know, when people bow, bow. And when they, you, they do something, you know, you copy them. <laughs> and, um, and they said, no, no, I mean, you know, for the initiation, what, what do we have to do? Mm. And I was m- mystified by this. I was totally... Um, at a loss to explain what he was um, he was on about, but he was thinking of like fraternity initiations mm. where you get paddled or something. Mm. Anyway, they filled his palm with amrita, and he held it up to me and said, "It looks like pee." And I had to admit it did look like pee. But um, and so I said. My word! I think you're right. And just sweeped it down and wiped it on my head like everybody in front of us was doing, and um, uh, and he he was completely like taken aback by this. Uh, of course, this was a long time before I realized that urine had been used as amrita. And, um, it was quite possibly, um, the urine of, the, of the guru who had eaten Amanita muscaria mushrooms. And, um, that's something else i point out in my book is that Amanita muscaria mushrooms contain two substances. It, they contain a lot of substances, but there are two specific substances that I consider. One of them is the psychoactive muscimol, and the other is a far less psychoactive, but much more toxic substance called ebotenic acid. Now, it is very possible that you can eat Amanita muscaria mushrooms and that in your body your your liver will convert a lot of the ebotenic acid not all but a lot of it into muscimol by decarboxylation and when you drink your own urine after eating the mushroom uh, you get a double dose or even more than double Uh, dose of the psychoactive substance. Now, um, this may have been what um, Gampopa described when um, he gave um, Milarepa a block of tea and uh, um, he made tea with it and just before he served it, he Said, um, let's add some spice to it and pissed in the pot of tea.
0: So, this happened but in he, the story?
1: Uh, this happened in, uh, yeah, supposedly in real life, um, in uh, the encounter of Gampopa, who, f- who founded the, the um, Kaju lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, mm. with his teacher, Milarepa. And Gambaba says that um, his pissing in the tea made it extraordinarily delicious.
0: Mm. It's like a strange strange coincidence that these kind of things are linked. And there seems to be quite a few of these little linkages, right?
1: There do indeed. And um, they are scattered about um, Tibetan literature For the people who know. Um, Now, it's quite common in India and in Tibet for tantricas, people who practice tantra and the, the practices of tantra, the sadhanas, that they are known as those who drink piss and eat dung.
0: Mm.
1: Now, I have described the process of drinking piss, um, but what's eating dung? Well, psilocybin mushrooms grow out of dung, and in fact, they 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 grow through it, but they appear to be an extension of the dung itself. They are part of the cow patty, mm. and so by eating them. You are eating in in the eyes of the ancient Indians who described it as eating dung itself, and that these are not um separate fungi or plants mm. they are supposed to be part of the dung
0: It's another interesting uh, linkage
1: yeah this and the, these these descriptions now I, I, you you spoke about the fifth precept mm-hmm. um, now the maha tantras which are, um they're some of the more advanced tantras the maha yoga tantras um they have their own five precepts. Um, instead of saying, don't kill, it says, they say, murder. And they mean that you should kill your own ego, your own notion of a uh, separate and uh, abiding existence. When it says, don't steal, it says, steal. When it says, um, don't lie, it says you must lie, you must tell lies and um, when it says um, don't commit sexual uh, improprieties, it says you must have sex only with your grandmother, your mother your sister or your daughter That doesn't sound very nice No, but what what it actually means is it's explained in the commentaries your uh, uh, the the um, mother of your guru, your guru's wife, uh, someone else who has been initiated by your guru, or someone you have initiated yourself. They're not literal, mm. and um, and when it comes to the fifth precept, it says you must eat, drink, and eat dung and drink urine.
0: Mm.
1: Now, it didn't say you must uh, take drugs that cloud the mind. It didn't say you must drink alcohol. No, it said you must eat dung and drink urine. So this is obviously symbolic too, but it's not explained in the commentaries. And um, I had to put that together for myself. And because of that, I'm quite prepared to... uh, uh, to put it in a book and tell people about it. If uh, if I'd been told, well, hush about this, but it means Amanita muscaria and psilocybin cubensis, mm, I wouldn't story. Be, Yeah, I wouldn't be telling you about it.
0: So I'm, I'm fascinated just to kind of go a little bit, just a question that's been kind of brewing is the idea of other ceremonial practices or aspects around this ina- ancient kind of um, process of of psychedelic use and if you've been able to uncover any others I'm just a little bit curious what kind oh. of rituals they performed other than the sacrifice other than this you know drinking of You mean, you and, mean within
1: Buddhism or with, in other religions
0: anything that you found would be interesting but yeah within Buddhism would be um, would be fascinating to know if there was just the ancient psychedelic use, if, if there were any kind of other ceremonial kind of practices or patterns that you've seen between the different traditions in that area, other than the actual taking of the sacrament?
1: Mm, um, maybe. I'll have to think about that. Mm. I do know that... Um. sao chen Rinpoche, very... Um, a very interesting um, Lama from Bhutan of the Sakya lineage. He has said about such substances that we have ways of using these, you know. And uh, and he also mentioned, if you don't believe me, I can give you page numbers in the Tantras, which actually mention these drugs. And um, he is uh, is said to have uh, used ayahuasca in his tantric feasts, um, as he has students in Brazil where such things are allowed. And um, in one of his videos, which is available on YouTube, um, he says, um, oh, he, he makes several comments about peyote and says, I was given some peyote juice before I came on, but it's not started working yet. So we know, we know that psychedelics were used and still continue to be used by certain lamas.
0: I think the interesting thing is for me in what way. So, in terms of, I know you're you're writing a second book. I'm not sure if you've completed that one just yet. But
1: I, I I finished it yesterday.
0: Oh, well, congratulations! It's kind of perfect <laughs> timing. Would you be able to, yeah, like, yeah. yeah? I I think in that book, I heard you mention once that you've you've maybe outlined and some, outlined some things that people may be able to um, explore in the realm of you know. Um, rituals or practices or or modalities um, that kind of bring us to a state of presence without psychedelics and and kind of fusing the two um there can be certain places that are reached that otherwise might not be able to um, be explored with with as much depth um are you able to maybe talk a little bit about some of those practices just I'm really interested in, in the ancient practices and, and the ones that are kind of um, maybe people are practicing these days and 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 exploring that territory a little bit.
1: Well, um, one of the practices which I've outlined in the book is called the long hung. And this can be practiced quite independently of any psychedelic use. Hmm. And this is just... Um, reciting the syllable home and, um, to put it, um, briefly, I'll, um, I'll just explain it now. Um, take a deep breath and then with every ounce of breath in your lungs, you say home for as long as you can like this now if you recite this for about seven times and that's what i would recommend is as a practice is to do it seven times
0: Mm -hmm.
1: then the long out breath combined with the vibration of the lips as you say and not oh or ah it's ooh and it makes the lips vibrate it triggers the switch to the parasympathetic nervous system. And when you, um, when your body is under the sway of the parasympathetic nervous system, which, by the way, uh, this is also called hacking the vagus nerve or some, there are modern terms for it too, Mm. um, that then your blood pressure goes down, your pulse slows, and you enter a very calm and clear state. This is something which can be done uh, without psychedelics, and it's probably best to practice first Without using any psychedelics, uh, just so that you get it down and get the um, the whole um, like experience of it and the feel of it, just so that you can you can feel that switch over to the parasympathetic parasympathetic nervous system.
0: Do you hold something within, like a thought or a feeling or a a certain?
1: Okay, if you want, um, if you want to um, elaborate the the practice further, you can imagine little um, either syllables in, written in Tibetan or or words written in English of Hung in various different uh, sizes and various different colors emanating from you as you say it. Does Hung and have so- a
0: meaning though?
1: No, no, it doesn't have any meaning. Um, it's a bija mantra like Om Ah hmm. uh, Tree and uh, and so on. These it's are more
0: about just that that vibration that you're creating.
1: Yes. And yes, flowing it's... back
0: into yourself. Yeah.
1: Quite exactly. Now there are practices for re- reciting all five of the. Um, the major Bija mantrasome, Ah, Hung, Hri, Tram, and um, what was the last one? Oh, oh, yes, I think I said that. Um, okay. Um, but this is the most interesting um, from my point of view, as as you can actually feel it shifting your consciousness
0: and what this sounds like a very strange thing to ask and I'm not I'm just trying to figure out exactly what I'm where I'm inquiring here but what would be like a sure like a reason or an intention for doing this or what could be one
1: well um, if you are in a situation where you find your your heart racing your your um breath coming in short pants like little english schoolboys <laughs> um and um uh, maybe you're, you can feel your blood pressure rising in getting a nosebleed or a headache or something then do this practice mm-hmm. just i mean just um i normally do it before meditation but you can use it as a uh, as a a um, a healing practice of the last resort. Mm. If you've tried all kinds of um, medications and they don't work, try this and see if it does.
0: The next thing that comes to mind fascinating to fascinating to hear about more practices, but this one's um this one's a beautiful one, and I appreciate you sharing it. I'm definitely going to give that a try myself. Um, I was wondering if you could, if you had any insight into ancient integration processes, or if anything like that ever came up in your research. Um, Is there any proof of any not, of that happening, or any kind of indication not, of it?
1: Not, not per se, hmm. but it's probable that such. Um, Practices were discussed between guru and student after the initiations. Hmm. Um, in the initiation, there is a period uh, called the tree, in which you are expected to ask questions. And the it, well, in in the tradition of my school, the Kaju, it's not felt to be um, a proper initiation unless um, everybody involved has asked all the questions that they they have in mind and all the doubts and misgivings they've asked of the, uh, the, the initiating guru. And only when everyone has been satisfied that they understand the teachings completely, is he allowed to get up and go? And he asks actually three times at the end of the tree, you know, is, now is everybody satisfied? Does everybody have all, all, all the their questions answered? And um, he'll, you know, he'll wait, he'll chat with you and he'll ask again. And eventually he asks three times and he says, all right, you've got it all now. I'm off, and and you know leaves it to um, to you to um, put to practice. And um, if there is any uh, question which arises out of your your practice following the initiation, then you can bring it up with him or with or your own. Um, personal guru is someone different you can bring it up with them um if it's about however if it is about an experience that you've had in meditation you're allowed to bring it up once and once only with your guru or or one of your your fellow initiates and um Having brought it up, you're expected to keep quiet about it. Um, This is because if it is um, a profound insight into the nature of non-duality, by bringing it up again, you're only bringing up a memory of it. And memories can only be made of words. If your experience was ineffable and beyond words, then that's not what you brought up. You brought up a memory of it, which is made of words and concepts and feelings and whatever else you may be able to drag into the conversation, but it's not the experience itself.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how that... That actually forms and shapes what you how you remember or how that how that experience itself is absorbed or changes within you by sharing it. And but you can still share it at once. So I guess that would still happen on, on some level. It'd still be watered down in, in some way. Maybe not uh-huh. as much. Yeah. So it's probably best not to share it at all. Unless you <laughs> you know just that's kind
1: that. of yes, that's my opinion. Yeah
0: yeah but there are occasions i mean yeah like for example like your the indra's net or web that you shared that would have been kind of in that same category but it's it's maybe there are exceptions or maybe there are times where it's probably more relevant or some things you'd keep and some things you'd share that's interesting now that
1: um that's something which i explicitly discuss in my new book I discussed the experience of Indra's net and my memories of it and, um, how the, uh, description of it is not really my experience of Indra's net. It's only a description of, of the words and concepts I have attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was far more mind blowing than it ever is when I'm describing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what you described was pretty mind blowing in itself, though. <laughs> so, would you be able to share a little bit more about this book? Like, what else is in it? I know you've, I know you've already written the one that you probably had most conversations to people about, which seems to be more of a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but more of a research into kind of um, early use of psychedelics and the links to Buddhism. Um, uh-huh. And
1: yes, well, I mean, the new one seems to be more of in- a
0: practical guide of some sort
1: it it is and it's in two halves it's psychedelics for buddhists and that's one half and the second half is buddhism for psychonauts so um in the book in the first half i describe what psychedelics are what they do um and describe um the Effects of a certain uh, um, subset of a selection of psychedelics. These are the ones that you might find in the street or might have offered to you at parties or whatever. And these are their effects. And um, this is how they would be used in Buddhism. Or this is how they are not useful to Buddhism.
0: Could you like, just uh, could you touch on that point a little bit? How are they not useful for Buddhism? That's like just for a moment. That's very interesting.
1: Um Ketamine, for instance, is very alluring and seductive for many people, but I don't I don't think that it is ultimately of any benefit uh to Buddhism. Um unless you can learn to put yourself in this state, but eventually I think this state is um, is still ego bound. And um, uh, the, the 2,5M Bomi compounds are, um, apparently, I've not taken them, um, but I've been told that they are fine psychedelics if taken in one hit, but unfortunately, some people have found even one one dose can be too much for them, and it's it's um it's toxic for them. That's what I mean by too much. Not that it's too much mentally, but it's too much physically for their body. Um, and um, much of the LSD available these days um, is actually I and um, one uh, one thing you should know about this is it's very bitter so if you um, you hold it in your mouth for a while and it it tastes bitter it's a spitter Th- spit it out because it's not LSD um, these are a few of the um, the substance which I have um, I have deemed to be not really useful to uh, to Buddhists, um, I have I I have um, said that LSDs and shrooms and uh, um, that some of the 2C compounds are very useful. Um, Some of the DO compounds are too much like stimulants to be useful and um, often last too long. But um, they could be used. Uh, They could possibly be used um, by um, people who want to meditate for 30 hours or whatever.
0: Hmm. And... Moving on to the idea of Buddhism for psychonauts, how would you see that? Oh, like
1: oh well, of- I've 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 given several meditations, um, and some some meditations for use, um, in um, in the context of uh, MDMA or MDA, and um, the the four positive emotions, for instance, love compassion, joy, and equanimity. Um, There is a meditation which is intended to um, evoke these uh, these emotions on a universal level, to to, um, wish all beings to be connected to happiness and the causes of happiness um to wish all beings to be separated from suffering and the causes of suffering and so on now uh such meditations as these and tonglen which is simply taking and giving taking suffering from sentient beings and replacing it with joy um Mentally, of course, we can't really do it in real life, but mentally we can. Um, these are to be practiced um, on psychedelics or on empathogens um, and, uh, and such as um, MDA, MDMA,
0: MDAI, and so on. Seems to be quite easy to notice when when there's like an imbalance or, or a strong leaning one way or another between, I can't, the only terms that come to mind at the moment are bhakti and shakti, so this idea of um, devotion and um, kind of awareness or, or kind of like a, a state of insight and leaning one way or another too much seems to be problematic um, you see this in terms of um, like a blind devotion without a sense of awareness or on the other end, kind of all this knowing or insight that's not grounded in any, any continual practice. Um, and, okay. and To me, it seems like balancing those is kind of what we're talking about here. If, But there needs to be some kind of a, an ongoing process that takes place after the after the amplification that's brought about through the combination of these practices with with the psychedelic substance?
1: Um, Yeah, I think so. Kind of, sort of. In Buddhism, there is no real um, appeal to bhakti. Mm -hmm. Although there is um, the shakti, which... Uh, I mean literally it's the term isn't used. The um the the term is Chandali, uh the fierce woman, uh, who is um uh, seen as equivalent to Shakti, the risen Kundalini. Um there is, however, the emotional content of the four positive emotions which I just mentioned. And it is um, essential to, to be able to generate them um, at will, if you like. And I have described a process of um, of meditation where these can be generated at will
0: in the sense of kind of devotion i'm not sure if there's there's another way i can put it with buddhism oh there is there is such a
1: thing as guru devotion
0: Mm, and um
1: um, and there are different levels of guru devotion which i do go into in the book Mm. um um these are um, they, these are, are kind of, you know, sort of bhakti. This is kind of, this is what I was considering when you said
0: bhakti. Would mm. Mm. Uh, you share a little bit more just around those? Just that, because I'm just I'm just very curious now, and and I don't want obviously don't want you to just. Give away the whole book in, the, in this in this <laughs> chat, um, but it's very it's very fascinating, and I didn't realize it covered so much ground.
1: Uh, oh, the book you mean? Yeah, it, um, it does. And i keep I keep thinking of other things I should be adding to it every <laughs> time I revise it. The artist curse, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, there are there are four levels of um, of guru devotion. Mm-hmm um there are four kinds of guru these are not related they are in different traditions
0: okay um,
1: um, but um there is uh, the the guru who um um points out practices and um and um and philosophies and so on to you there's the the guru who is found in books there is the guru who is found in everyday life say somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get angry and you think oh that's actually my guru i it, he just showed me how i i can get angry at the slightest thing and then there is the guru of um, everyday reality. These are the four different gurus. Um, there are uh, four different ways of um, of merging with the guru, of becoming the guru yourself. Um, I spend a little time on examining Terence McKenna's uh, expression of, of um, his admonition not to follow gurus, follow the plants. And I said he probably doesn't mean potatoes and cabbages in plants, but he's he's talking about psychoactive plants and uh, psychedelic fungi and so on. Um, and I um, I take apart his you know, his notion of, of guru, um, which I believe, although he's not around for us to question anymore, I believe he meant these um, uh, ego-inflated people who believe that they are somehow better than you and more um, they're wiser and uh, and more divine than you are and so they allow you little drips of their uh, their, their divinity and i i say that that this is nonsense because we are all enlightened we are i mean maybe they took acid one time and found that they were enlightened which is all very well but don't tell you anybody else that they're not enlightened to mm-hmm. uh, because we all have the same buddha nature um, and so I, I I do go on at some length about this and, and also mention that um, before accepting anybody as a guru you should really um, check them out
0: mm-hmm.
1: sit in meditation with them for a few months Ask them questions, ask them searching questions about psychedelics. What do they think about them? Are they really who they claim to be? Are they really lamas or are they gurus in, the, the, in a, a Hindu some pradaya? Or you know, do they give themselves titles? Do they um you uh, know inflate themselves their own egos at the expense of their followers, you know, all of these um, uh, questions I've, I've put in the book and said, there are more, if you, there are more, if you want to, you know, add your own questions that you, uh, you want to examine your guru by and more criteria, which you can hold them up to and see how they measure.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to consider where we where we derive lessons from and you know the different kind of ways in which that can that process can take place and the different types of teachers you know from within from afar
1: um, yeah now uh, one of the the uh, basic um, qualities of a teacher as I have pointed out in the book, is that um, there should be someone. Who is in the business of showing you you are your own teacher? It's a
0: reflective of showing process.
1: you that, hmm. yeah, and uncovering the the um, Buddha nature, taking you know layer after layer off, um, and revealing the Buddha nature within to eventually the uh, what's called the pointing out instruction.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I, I just kind of floating around in my mind space at the moment. And I'm, I'm cognizant of time as well. So I don't want to kind of overstep with how much time we have to share. I just wanted to check in before I ask you anything else. Um, how are we going with time? And, and do we need to kind of close things off soon? Are you open? Are you? Because I know it's getting. I'm, I'm, I think I should start cooking my dinner soon so, okay. uh, well then <laughs> so we'll, we'll definitely... we've will got five or ten
1: minutes left
0: yeah good to check in because i didn't want to just keep going without the consideration um and then, then we can let you off the, off the hook to go have some food <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah because i've noticed it's slowly getting darker and darker in your end which is interesting because it's, it's like it middle of the day here sunny yeah um okay so i wanted to know um yeah just where to go since we've only got so, um, a little bit of time left. I, I I'm just thinking about this process of this this. It just seems to me that it never really occurred to me. You know this idea of MDMA and you're meditating on um, this sense of of deep love um, and compassion and and which it's in itself is quite a powerful meditation. But combined with the, the thought of it being combined with MDMA we just seems like there'd be an immense um, amplification and explosion of love that takes place. And mm-hmm. um, it almost seems like it's a ramping up thing. So um, putting the foot down or putting the pedal to the metal, I guess, in terms of bringing about this energy and really cultivating that from within and, and embodying that and having that experience that, that then may be able to be um, easier, more easily kind of referred back to or gone a little bit deeper so that you can move into life with, you know, with that kind of more embodied state um, when you're going out outside of the psychedelic experience. Would there be any other kind of reasons or um, reasons to combine psychedelics with, with meditative states or different modalities um, besides amplification? Um, Well, I did know
1: um, someone who's who's passed away now, a guy called Arthur Hastings, who was an English hypnotherapist,
0: Mm.
1: who actually um, took, I think it was seven people, and um, brought them back into the MDMA state with zero chemical assistance. And he did it by hypnotherapy.
0: Once that already had that experience together. They
1: had it, and one of the people had um, had a single experience about 11 years earlier, and somebody else had had several, you know, like on a a weekly or monthly basis. And so their experiences were all over the place, but he brought them to the same. the same state, the same uh, feeling of um, of empathy. and um, they all said that they were all asked afterwards how their experiences compared to actual MDMA. and they said either it was indistinguishable or it was better because there were no side effects.
0: Mm, like body they wide, had and... no
1: teeth grinding or yeah. what have you. Um, so I think that is a that's definitely a modality which should be explored the use of, of hypnotherapy with MDMA mm. and maybe, maybe, uh, with psychedelics as a whole because, um, if you visualize yourself as, say, Avalokiteshvara or Tara or Manjushri um, and recite their mantras while on psychedelics, maybe uh, visualizing that deity and reciting their mantras would bring about the same state. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't tried it.
0: Hmm. Um, it It would be interesting just as kind of a closing note, maybe if you wanted to share with people that may not have kind of combined psychedelics with any of these practices or maybe you know Buddhists that might not have ever had any psychedelics and are considering kind of venturing to that territory. Are there any considerations you'd like to share or any kind of, I'm sure there's plenty and and I'd love for you to kind of share where we can access your book as well once it's ready. But are, are there anything you could just kind of share to people or sprinkle some seeds out there that if people are interested, you know, maybe it would help them on this path in a safe and responsible well, way. Well, first
1: of all, I think these days, test your drugs. Mm. They should be. It, um, there are far more substances being sold as MDMA now than ever were in the past, mm. and it's possible to, to buy MDMA Molly. Um X, e, mandy, whatever it's called, uh, which has absolutely zero to do with MDMA. Hmm. So test your drugs. also, test your drugs for fentanyl. Uh, there there should be zero fentanyl in LSD, but it is known that LSD, which has been bought on the dark web, is contaminated or has been, found to be contaminated with fentanyl this is essential these days that we if you don't know the chemist personally then test your drugs um that's the most important thing that i have to say to anyone Mm -hmm. and that's also part of my book Mm -hmm.
0: so that's the biggest kind of safety precaution anything to say in terms of um The idea of, I don't know, like the other side of the fence and maybe even like, how do you feel about psychedelics? Do you feel like they're needed in that realm? And I'm sure people can, you know, in the modern day and age.
1: And now there are plenty of of, uh, um, enlightened people who have never touched psychedelics. Exactly, yeah. And there are plenty of people who've been meditating for years and got absolutely nowhere who are mm. adamant that psychedelics should not be used in this context. Mm. Um, I believe they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, that's why my the first part of my book is psychedelics for Buddhists, mm. because I believe that people who have too high, tight a hold on Buddhism are really... Um, closing themselves off to the experience of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, and psychedelics are not for everyone. Um, there are some people who just get too uptight, too scared, too, um, overwhelmed by psychedelics, uh, who perhaps shouldn't take them. Maybe they should just meditate. Um but do meditate. Um that's that's the uh that's one of the um the primary uh concerns I have people should meditate. Um should they take psychedelics? Well maybe, maybe not, but uh it it wouldn't hurt to try and um it wouldn't hurt to try them both together.
0: Mm. i really appreciate you sharing that i just i'll 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 let you go after this i just had this thought of the importance of kind of um or the or the the usefulness i know in my own practice of kind of meditating after an experience and and even allowing that to be part of the an essential part of the integration process of Uh just really absorbing and sitting with whatever the experience you went through was
1: oh Um, absolutely absolutely yes
0: yeah Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your wisdom and your your wonderful kind of bag of of research and and inquiry you know that all began from this kind of interesting journey you had with with this little orange. Um, yeah. bit of LSD. With a
1: third of a third of a tab of orange sunshine and um, a teaspoon of cannabis. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Yeah, yeah, interesting combination. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mike. Oh, and I must say, if you are enjoying these conversations and you feel like deepening your connection with the show, then you can definitely do that by supporting the mindful media vibes that are radiating out every week from the Today Dreamer podcast by heading over to patreon.com/slash Today Dreamer and joining the Today Dreamer tribe where there'll be special perks made available, including exclusive podcast episodes, videos, and heaps of good stuff, guided meditations, uh, monthly hangouts. Check it out. I'm not going to say too much more, but feel free to explore that space, patreon.com forward slash dreamer.